All right, and welcome to another episode of Sonic Reformation. This is Britt Watson, and along with me, as always, is Trucker Paul or Theologian Paul, whichever way you want to take it now. I think we've given him a couple of different names. But we have a special guest today, and one that Paul and I are grateful to have on this podcast, and that is Pastor Sean Cole. Now, I should probably, I should have asked you before we started, if you want to go by Pastor Sean or Dr. Cole, because <laughs> uh, it depends on the context. Pastor Sean's fine. Okay. Okay. So that's, we're, that's fine. we'll go with, we'll go with Pastor Sean, but I do not want to take away that uh, Pastor Sean in 2016 received his doctor of ministry in expository preaching. So kudos to you, brother. That, that says a lot about you. That's some, that's some tenacity there. It was a, it was a fun experience, but I'm glad it's over. <laughs> now, um, you are the lead pastor of the Manual Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, I've been here. I've been here for 14 years pastoring wow. this, this great congregation. That's congratulations, man. Now, you guys are you're part of the SBC. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We're considered a Southern Baptist church, but we're actually more of a 1689 Reformed Baptist church okay. as well. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense. We have a lot in common there. Now, now, Paul, our, our brother on the other end, Paul belongs to a Presbyterian church. So uh, so you got a, a Reformed Presbyterian and then two Reformed Baptists and see how we get along. It's, yeah, it's, we can convince them, we can convince them of credo baptism in about five minutes. So. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. It, it would definitely be a fun conversation. <laughs> now, now, Sean, there's something else that we need to congratulate you on, and that's you've been married. Is it what about 24 years? Um, actually, 25. My 25. wife and I celebrated our 25th back in June. Congratulations. So. Sean is taking time out of his busy day, and I say busy because Sean is also. Now, when did you release the book, um, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, it was basically late April is when that book came available through the publisher, Whiff and Stock Publishers, and it's available on Amazon. And so, yeah, I'm just thankful to be able to write that book, and hopefully it's a, a blessing to the body of Christ well, if it's anything like your podcast, and his podcast is Understanding Christianity, if it's anything along the lines of the podcast that you put out, it will definitely be edifying to anyone and everyone who reads it. So a very busy man, husband, father of two, pastor of a church for 15 years, author, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace and the Gospel, Pastor Sean Cole, and you can take you can order this book. It's on Amazon, correct? Yeah, it's yeah, it's probably the cheapest on Amazon. Okay, you can get it at like Christian Books or Barnes and Noble, but I think Amazon. There's a Kindle version too. Oh, right on. So, so we're telling all our listeners to go out, grab this book, support Sean and his ministry because he's been doing a fine job just getting in the trenches and and well, we can say he's doing a fine job because of what we're going to be talking to him about today, and and hopefully. In the work that he's done, bringing Paul and I to a better understanding when it comes to the traditionalist viewpoint, which is, would you say that, would you say that's a primary, um, not a primary, let me go about rephrasing that question. Do you think that understanding is primarily in the SBC when it comes to the, the traditionalist understanding? Yeah, basically it goes back to 2012. Um, Eric Hankins is a pastor in Mississippi, and he drafted the traditional statement on Southern Baptist theology that was endorsed by a lot of heavy hitters in the SBC, and it's got uh, like a thousand signatures. It used to be under an organization called Connect 316, mm -hmm. which is now kind of defunct, um, and they've kind of migrated everything over to Soteriology 101 with Leighton Flowers. But this whole traditional Southern Baptist term is fairly new you know, basically around 2012 was when they started using that term. How long, I mean, how old do you think that this understanding actually is? Well, I've got a theory and I, hopefully you guys will let me explain it just a little bit. I think that a lot of this theology comes from Karl Barth, um, whose church dogmatics back in the mid fifties influenced Herschel Hobbes, who was a seminary student at Southern 
in the 40s and 50s. And then in the 1960s, Herschel Hobbes was the main Southern Baptist theologian, spokesman. He you know, published all the curriculum through the Sunday School Board. And what he argued for was a move away from the Calvinistic roots of the SBC, not to full-blown Arminianism, but he's the one that basically articulated the corporate view of election, borrowing a lot from Karl Barth. Um, if you go back and read his Ephesians commentary and you um, look at some of his stuff in the commentary on the Baptist Faith and Message, 1963, Leighton Flowers and others, the traditionalists get their theology directly from Herschel Hobbes. Hmm. And so we're talking maybe from like the 60s and 70s is when it kind of you know made its height. So we're talking within the last maybe 50 years. Do you, do you see that as a red flag? I see it as a red flag because Herschel Hobbes is an interesting character. I don't want to denigrate him because I think he was a great Southern Baptist statesman, mm-hmm. but some of his views, um, you know, when, when, when the conservative resurgence happened, he didn't really align himself with the side because he wanted to be a diplomat. But there are some concerning things. I mean, I think he would affirm inerrancy, but his view of – like the view of man and the sinfulness of man and God's sovereignty is very, very semi-Pelagian. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's pretty concerning if you actually read what he says. That's always, always, I'm a pastor of a small church and that's one of the things that we, we try to express over and over is that if there is an understanding that is less than four or five hundred years old, mm-hmm. we should really grapple with what it is that they are saying. Right, and 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 I guess that's where my concern comes in with with this viewpoint, that being the traditionalist, and it being so. I mean, it's an infant, right? And, and, well, and and here's the thing: if you want to know my opinion about the politics behind it. I think here's what happened. I think in the past 10, 15 years, you've seen the rise of the young, whatever you want to call it, the young restless reform movement, a resurgence in reform theology in Southern Baptist circles. You got, you know, together for the gospel, you got founders, you got, you know, Acts 29, Nine Mark, Southern Seminary. And so there's this been wave of these younger pastors coming out that are embracing reform theology. And I think that the older guard within the Southern Baptist Convention was taken like they were shocked that it's taking on. And so I think the traditional movement is a reaction to that. And they're like trying to hurry up and get ahead of the curve. And so they're kind of slowly but surely getting their theology out there. And the main proponent, and I don't know if they've propped Leighton Flowers up as their main spokesman or, or if, they, if there's some type of an agreement behind the scenes that he's going to just go out there and be the, be the main spokesman. But, um, he is prolific. I mean, almost every day there's something on, um, you know, YouTube or whatever that's anti-Calvinistic geared specifically towards Southern Baptists. And so I think it's a reactionary movement, more of what they're against than a positive. This is really what our, our view is. And I think they're figuring it out as they go along. Yeah. And, in, and, and so the, the church that I pastor, we're, we're not part of the SBC. However, I was raised in a, a Southern Baptist church, and I was there probably for 25 years of my life. And the, the church that I was raised in is definitely anti-reformed. Mm. Now, with this movement, whether Layton's heading it up or not, and you being involved with the, the, the Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. Do you see it? Is it gaining traction? Because you're right. I do think what they are reacting to is the rise of, you know, Calvinistic understanding or reform theology within the SBC. So do you think the work that that he is doing, is it gaining traction? Are you? I don't think so. I'll give you about five or six years ago. I had a conversation with Vody Bachman. I don't know if you guys know who Vody oh, Bachman is. Love, a, yes, oh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, African-American. Uh, and we were having lunch because I invited him out to preach at the Colorado Baptist Convention. And um, 
you know, he, we were talking about Calvinism and he basically was saying that certain seminaries, he, I won't name those seminaries <laughs> on the podcast, but he, you know, two, two specific seminaries, he basically said are shells of themselves and that basically it's over. Um, the, the Calvinists have won the day and there's, there's really no traction to, to make up for that. And so I, I think Leighton Flowers does have a following I think it's grown more now than it did about five years ago when he first started. And I think that's because he's been backed by people like David Allen, who is a big time professor at um, Southwestern. You know, he's got that Trinity College of the Bible where he and Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett are. And so, you know, I think they're making a small dent. But in reality, when you look at the conferences and the books and the resources that are coming out from just Southern Baptist Calvinists, there's no comparison to the tsunami that is Reformed theology um, within Southern Baptist life. You know, um, that's, that's so, a... go ahead, Paul. Sorry. <clears throat> well, I, I was just going to say back to uh, what you were talking about earlier, how you think it's a, a reaction to the Calvinistic uh, movement within the SBC, but Leighton Flowers theology also attacks the traditional Armenian view because a yes. lot of his views are different from their yes. views, and and so it, it, I you know I was talking to Brent earlier about this. I don't understand why the 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 Armenian within the SBC hasn't called Leighton out on some of his belief because. I understand that Leighton's, uh, you know, what he's trying to do is, is you know, disprove uh, Reformed theology, but at the same time, he's also pointing the same finger at the Arminians. So could you talk right. a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's why that's why the traditionalists, and they're, and they're actually, they're changing their name. I'm, I'm kind of starting to use, they're, they're starting to call themselves provisionists now. Okay. Yes. I think they realize that the word traditional doesn't really doesn't really <laughs> sell. It's not a good marketing term. So now it's provisionist. I don't know how how well that term does either. But um, I, I think the reason they're so hard to pin down is because they're they don't fit the category of the traditional classic Arminian, and obviously they're not reformed. They're kind of a hybrid in between. And so I'll give you a perfect example of where I saw this play out. And that's when Leighton Flowers had Roger Olson on his podcast. Yes. And Roger Olson is a, you know, he's written some big time, you know, scholarly works on Arminianism. He's probably the foremost scholarly Arminian. And they were talking towards the end of that podcast, into that YouTube clip. Um, Leighton was pushing Roger Olson um, on the whole issue of total inability because traditional Arminians believe in total inability. Correct. Um, yes. They just believe that the answer to it is prevenient grace given to everyone. But at least Calvinists and Arminians start at the same point with total depravity, total inability, spiritual deadness. And um, Roger Olson disagreed with Leighton, and it was kind of interesting. But see, the, the whole linchpin of the Soteriology 101 provisionist traditional Southern Baptist movement is they, they are going to adamantly deny moral and spiritual inability from birth. Yes. So that puts them at the crosshairs with the classical Arminian because the classical Arminian is going to start there with mm. moral and spiritual inability. Um, and so if they can get people to buy into that, and then they also hold to the corporate view of election and, and within what I've understood within Arminianism, there's different groups there's your classic, you know, John Wesley Arminians that believe in the foreseen faith, foreknowledge view. And then there's like Brian Abisciano, who's, who's more of the corporate election. So within Arminianism, there's there's a couple of ways they understand election. But I've told Leighton this. I said, you're you're a weird bird because you're not an Arminian. You're not a Calvinist. You're you're kind of this weird hybrid in the middle. And nobody can figure out what you believe uh, because you kind of. <laughs> deny major tenets of both sides and so um you know it's it's very interesting that 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 historically you know within the past 50 years he doesn't fit into any of the categories that have traditionally been around um, even though he wants to argue that the early church fathers uh, didn't teach individual election but they were, they were corporate election guys which i i i denounce that based oh. upon the study i've done so can i ask you because I, I, this leads right into a um 
another question that I had for you and, and what you just said is from their standpoint, when it, they, they continue to use the argument that election wasn't about individuals and, and they keep blaming this on Augustine. Right. As if that was the starting point. Right. You guys there? Yes. Yes. Can you yeah, hear okay, me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me give you guys a quote. Um, and I think this is a, this is from Alexander or Alice. I'm sorry, not Alistair, not Alexander, Alistair McGrath. Hmm. Um, and he wrote a book called um, The Justification of God, A History of the Christian Doctrine of Justification. And he writes this, by the end of the fourth century, the Greek fathers had formulated a teaching on human free will based upon philosophical rather than biblical foundations. Standing in the great Platonic tradition, heavenly influenced by Philo, and reacting against the fatalism of their day, they taught that humankind was utterly free in its choice of good and evil. Mm. One thing I have not heard Leighton Flowers say is the influence of Philo on the early church fathers. Now, Philo was a um, Jewish philosopher and theologian that was really affected by um, Platonic thought. And if you go back and read the commentaries from the early church, um, they all get from, from Philo, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Mm. Um, so what Philo did was he took that Old Testament passage and basically defined autonomous free will from a perspective of Jewish uh, Platonism. And so Philo of Alexandria basically articulated the whole idea of autonomous libertarian free will. And so those like Justin Martyr, um, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, um, all of these early church fathers, they just borrowed that view of free will from Philo because they were reacting against the, um, the Gnosticism that was the extreme determinism. But there was not really a, an actual um, commentary on the book of Romans until about the time of Augustine. Um, and so – and I've heard James White say this before, and other, other historians would say that the early church, they weren't arguing predestination and free will. They were more arguing Christology and trying to formulate a doctrine of the Trinity against the heresies. And so they weren't really arguing the same type of arguments for the bondage of the will and election and predestination. So a lot of that teaching it's just not in their in their writings. But I actually would go back and, and look at the commentaries on Romans and some of these other things. If you go back to the history of the church, the early church fathers did not really adopt a corporate view of election. It was individual election unto salvation, but it was the foreknowledge view. Right. It wasn't I'm not, I'm gonna agree with Leighton. The early church fathers did not teach um, unconditional election. They taught foreseen faith view. And it really wasn't until Augustine that, that he understood, you know, and articulated that. But I would say they did not, from what I understand and from my teachings, uh, the corporate view of election until about – you can read some commentaries. It wasn't really about until like 1920s, this guy named Pierre Maury. He's from France. Um, he articulated corporate view. Karl Barth adopted it. And then I think Herschel Hobbes adopted it from there, and then it kind of became part and parcel of – of this traditional Southern Baptist movement. That's a quick history. So, well, a brilliant one at that. So, thank you. I, I've got a, I've got another question. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever thought about debating Leighton? Like in a um, formal I have. debate. I, I've, I've actually, we've actually debated before. Um, I don't know if you guys know who Tyler Vela is. Um, he's got, he's got the. Um, um, the Free Thinker podcast. Oh, yes, 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 um, yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so uh, about three or four years ago, Tyler Vela and I partnered up to debate Braxton Hunter and um, Leighton Flowers. And I think we only got through, we went through Tulip, we only got through T and a little bit of U, and there were some things behind the scenes that happened that basically brought that to a, to a screeching halt. Um, but I have actually interacted with Leighton 
you know, and that wasn't, that was a podcast debate. It wasn't a live debate. Right. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to debate him and cross examine him, um, in front of a live audience, but I don't know if that would ever happen. See, I, I would love to see that because again, not to, um, blow smoke here, but the way that you're able to break down what it is that they believe for the, the traditionalist, I, you have this understanding that I do not believe most people have because you're right. It, it is this hybrid. So it's hard to pin someone down when you're not even sure where they stand from one topic to the next, because there's no set pattern. It, 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 right. It's kind of a shotgun approach. Well, and it's, it's interesting because like, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know if you guys know who Steve Lindkey is. Mm -hmm. He's the uh, dean of theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's a big-time traditionalist. He's a big-time, you know, I would almost call him full-blown Arminian, but he doesn't believe you can lose your salvation. And he and Leighton Flowers disagree on issues. Um, he's not a corporate election guy. He's a foreseen faith guy. And so Leighton will even tell you, we're not a, a uh, what's the word? We're, we're not a monolithic group. We all have differences you know, of opinions. And so because it's so new and because they don't have like a confession that's been adopted, um, they say they agree with the Baptist faith and message, but they came out with their own traditional statement. And, and, and it's very telling. If you go back and you look at their traditional statement, um, article two on the sinfulness of man is, is really even Dr. Moeller, Al Moeller had accused it of being semi-Pelagian and even Roger Olson and Arminian accused it of being semi-Pelagian. So here you had Roger Olson and Dr. Al Mohler both condemning the traditional statement on the sinfulness of man, and that um, caused a lot of controversy back when it came out as well. Wow. You know, it's interesting, too, because I, I think you're right, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I do believe that there is a backing when it comes to Leighton, and I don't know who it is behind the scenes, but definitely within the Southern Baptist, because I noticed just recently that was it connect 316. Didn't they have a blog that they used to put out and now they no longer, yeah. they did away with it and, and they're referring people to soteriology 101. So I do think that you are correct when you said earlier that something's going on behind the scenes and they're almost propping yeah. him up. Yeah, I don't. Last year, 2018, at the annual Southern Baptist Convention, is when the whole issue with Paige Patterson blew up. And J.D. Greer was, and I don't really consider him a Calvinist, though, no. even though he's more Calvinistic than some. So he was the candidate for president. And then the traditionalists put up, um, oh gosh, his name just slipped me, um, Ken Hemphill, put up Hemphill as their candidate. And he got soundly defeated. Um, you know, it was a new day. J.D. Greer, the, the quasi-Calvinist, got elected. Um, you know, in that time, Rick Patrick, who was the head of Connectric 16, had a really crass tweet that got him basically blackballed in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so uh, once J.D. Greer won the election and their traditionalist guy got smoked and Paige Patterson went down in flames, they laid silent for a couple of months. And then, at the, like last summer, they just kind of said, hey, we're done we've dissipated we're sending everything over to soteriology 101 mm. and so i don't know who the powers that be that are behind Leighton doing this i do know he's on staff at the you know the the baptist general convention of texas but i don't know who who's pushing this if it's southwestern seminary new orleans seminary saying hey you know we're seminary professors we can't be that polemical we we have to play the political game in the sbc because <laughs> we have donors hey we're behind you you go out and be our voice We'll support you. We'll stand behind you, but we can't really be the the polemical guy on the front lines. But you go go for it, Leighton. That that could be what's happening. I would buy that. I'd buy that. I've got one more question, and then I'll let sure. Paul jump in here. One of the sure. one of the issues that we Paul and I have keep seeing the parable of the prodigal son <laughs> yeah. being used to explain, in a way, their soteriology. Well. Yeah, here's and I actually did a podcast on this today. I don't know if you guys. I, did I drop saw today. that. I flower, saw flower that earlier. Fallacies. Yeah. So, because um, I was listening to him critique Ali Stuckey, and, and he got a lot clearer than he's normally been on some issues I hadn't heard him speak before. But um, Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet mm. and the prodigal son, and so I guess 
let, let's just stop and, and say this. One of, the, one of the rules in hermeneutics, especially when it comes to parables, is that you don't want to build a systematic theology out, out of a parable. Amen. Um, and that's kind of a hermeneutical issue that probably Leighton and I would disagree on. And so his definition of deadness in that the prodigal came to his senses, he had the libertarian free will to kind of wake up from his pigsty, and he chose to come home, and uh, he wasn't spiritually and morally unable to do that. Uh, he was just separated from his father, and that's what the word dead means. And so I'm going to create a, a meaning of the word dead from a parable, and then I'm going to go over to the church in Sardis in Revelation, yes. and that church is dead. And so I'm going to I'm going to kind of co-opt what I established in um, the prodigal son and, and import that meaning into dead over there in Sardis. And oh, by the way, when we get to Paul's didactic teachings in Ephesians 2 about spiritual deadness or Romans 8, um, we're not going to let the didactic teachings or the grammar of what Paul teaches um, influence our meaning of dead. We're going to import what the parable means into every meaning of the word dead. Yes. And so that's exactly what he's done. Mm. I find it interesting, too, that he leaves out the, the other brother. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if just the times that I've heard him break down that parable, I never hear anything about the other brother. And not only that, I never hear Leighton lay out who it is the parable is actually going out to. Right. And I think that's so important. And yet at the same time, Dr. Flowers, you would think would be more responsible in his mm-hmm. teachings, and, and that's what concerns me. Yes, um, I know he's written a book, Potter's Promise, that's yes. based upon his, because he and I were getting our doctorates about the same time, and we talked a little bit about that. His, He was getting his through New Orleans, and that was his doctoral thesis that became that book. But I have never actually really heard Leighton Flowers exegete, like, like when you're in pastoral ministry and you teach expositionally every week, you're exegeting texts all the time. That's right. You're, you're looking at big chunks of text. You're you're looking at how the biblical theology flows. You're exposing yourselves to all different types of genres, and and so you're getting you're, you're learning how to to read the Bible and understand the Bible. And I mean, he's got four or five key texts that he goes over and over again. That he's got his exegetical conclusions. That really, for a person that's supposed to have a you know a degree in and understand the languages and the Greek and tenses of verbs. Um, one of the big things that kind of drives me crazy, two things about, <laughs> I'm just going to get on my soapbox here. Two things <laughs> about it. Number one is um, he, he can't understand the difference between indicative and an imperative. It drives me crazy because almost every passage of scripture that's an indicative that describes a condition, he always makes into an imperative, yes. assuming that, You've got the free will to get yourself out of deadness or you've got the free will to get yourself out of being hostile. And and so once the appeal comes to you, you have the ability to to do it. And so, you know, that that's that's a big you know thing I have. The other thing is I I don't think he fully uh, he gives a truncated or a very uh, low view of conversion mm-hmm. for him. Conversion basically means all you need to do is admit that you're in bondage. You need to admit you're in slavery. You need to admit you need help. Uh, just merely admitting it, um, just because you can't fulfill the demands of the law doesn't mean you can't admit you can't demand the, you know, fulfill the demands of the law. And so for him, conversion is not a deep work of the spirit where God has to reach down in the deep rest, recesses of your heart, mind, and soul and change you supernaturally into a new creation. It's more, hey, when the gospel appeal comes and that's the grace enough, it's sufficient to enable a response once that comes – you just simply admit that you need help, and then that's that's what saves you. Yeah, the whole. And so it's all. a very faulty. I don't know if it's faulty. It's a very minimalistic view of conversion. That's interesting. You brought that up because Paul was having a conversation with Eric Kemp. Mm-hmm. Do you know Eric Kemp? I know who he is. Okay. Yeah, he's he's kind of the publisher. He's the editor of Sociology One Hundred and One, or the, yes, yes, the one that put, put, puts all the posts up. So, Paul, will you? explain or lay out the conversation that you were having with Eric Kemp, especially when it comes to the whole conversion? Yeah, well, we were uh, discussing specifically uh, John 3, and we, we were talking John 3, 3, specifically, where it says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, when when I 
had this discussion with Eric, he would say, well, all that is is a, is, is a kinship language. It just means that, uh, that a person has to be, and he really didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but he says transfer from one family into the another family. That's oh. what the phrase mm. born again means. Mm. And so I, I actually mm. accused him. I said, it sounds like to me that you're taking all the, the, the supernatural spiritual work of the spirit out of it. Mm. And, and of course, he, he kind of got on me for that, but he didn't. He didn't come back and say, no, you know, that, that the spirit has to, you know, he didn't go into any kind of detail. Uh, and, 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 well, that's one of the things that, that I think Leighton Flowers misses uh, in, in his uh, theology. Because when, when you go to Romans, where, where it talks about those in the flesh cannot please God, Right. He'll say, he said, well, there's nothing in the text here that says how a person right. goes from the flesh to the spirit. But Jesus right. clearly says in John 3 right. that those that are born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, he creates that dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit. There's right. no mixture there. Right, right. So can yeah, you talk a little the, bit about yeah. that? Well, a couple of things, and I hope I don't lose my track. Let me get, let me address Romans 8 in just a minute. But I think back to Eric Kemp's discussion about kinship language, that sounds very close to what like N.T. Wright and the new yes. perspective on Paul's yes. theology is because they're, they're more – I don't want to go into all that because it's kind of confusing. But in a nutshell, uh, basically what they would argue is that you know when Paul talks about justification by faith alone, when Paul talks about salvation, it's not so much how an individual – gets born again or gets saved, it's more um, Paul was using that language to show how um, Jews and Gentiles were part of the same covenant family. And that, that language is more like marked you to being part of the covenant community as opposed to individual salvation. And so it could be that he's influenced by new perspective views on that. Well, but, I, go ahead. I, I don't mean it. Well, I don't mean to interrupt, but what I was going to say is, when, when I asked him to kind of go in, in some more detail with that, then he, he simply said, well, the, the Jews of that day would have understood what Jesus said. But clearly Nicodemus right. did Didn't. not understand what Jesus was saying. So I don't understand where he gets, you know, where how he makes that connection. It, you well, know, referring to the, the, the kinship language when Nicodemus himself yeah. didn't even understand. Right. And, and as a matter of fact, um, the text there in John 3 says Nicodemus was the teacher. There's a definite article. He was the teacher in Israel, which some scholars believe he may have been like the top dog mm. that was the, the main teacher. So he should have known his Old Testament. And that's why Jesus goes back to that Ezekiel 36 passage about being born of water and spirit. You know, that I will sprinkle clean water in you and I'll put a new heart in you. Um, <laughs> but, but, but Romans 8, um, Paul is very – all those verbs – are in the indicative, which describe a condition, not something you're commanded to do. Because what Leighton will say is, you can choose to get out of the flesh and choose to get into the spirit. A non-believer, an unregenerate person, once the gospel comes to them, they can choose to stop setting their mind on the flesh. They can choose to stop being hostile to God. You grow hostile over time. You grow calloused over time. But you can choose to get out of that condition. Paul would say, listen, all of these verbs are in present tense indicative, meaning they're ongoing conditions of reality. And when it says the mind is hostile and that the, the mind is deaf and that you're not able, I mean, Paul bends over backwards um, to show that the condition of the unregenerate person is moral and spiritual inability to do anything to get into the spirit unless God does a work deep in the heart to overcome that, that deadness. Um, but they would just say, yeah, once the gospel comes, you can choose to move from being in the flesh to being in the spirit, um, which I don't understand how, how you can understand Paul to say you can just basically wake up one day and choose to get yourself out of enslavement to sin. Yeah, well, uh, like in uh, Romans 8, verse 5, it talks about for those that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and those that mm -hmm. are after the spirit mind the things of the spirit. And it basically is exactly what jesus said when he says those that are born of the flesh are flesh and those that are born in the spirit of spirit mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. uh, and, and it seems that 
you know, Leighton wants to to intermingle the two. Right. Yeah, and, and I've heard, um, and it's interesting. It goes back to a hermeneutical issue too. Is as opposed to the clear passages of Scripture teaching, the clear didactic passages that teach these things. It's always let's jump back to a parable or let's jump back to analogy. Yes. And um, and one of the things that Leighton does a lot is that he will use tons of analogies to try to describe his view, and his analogies are always faulty because he's always comparing. He's always making them a human analogy, like a human-to-human relationship, as opposed to a sovereign God's relationship to a to a creature. And so, um, there, I could go on and on about a lot of these things, but I just think there's some hermeneutical issues. There's some um, misunderstanding of the nature of man. There's just a lot of problems and holes in their their understanding. Well, I know uh, that you pointed this out several times, but. Uh if you if you stand in Romans here, if, if you look at Romans eight, uh, let's see, I think it's uh, verse nine, where mm-hmm. before it says, "So they that are in the flesh cannot please God." Verse nine, it says, "But you are not in the flesh," and it, and it gives a reason why uh, the person is not in the flesh. It, it says because if the spirit dwells in you, then you are not in the flesh. So how does how does Leighton get away with not being able to make that make that connection? Because if he's saying that a person can choose to go from the flesh to the spirit just by choosing to set one's mind here or there, mm-hmm. does then he would have to concede that the Holy Spirit would have to leave that person once he sets his mind on the flesh, wouldn't he? If, uh, if you're consistent with the text. Yeah, yeah bingo. bingo. I mean, yeah, you <laughs> you caught the fallacy right there because and he even said, I think in that Ali Stuckey interview, believers, regenerate believers can choose to go back into the flesh and set their mind back on the flesh, or they can choose to be in the spirit. And I'm like, how can wow. you even make that leap? Because like you said, verse 9 is a very clear statement that if you – you know, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're permanently not in the flesh anymore. You're a regenerate person. You can't just float back and forth in between these things. So I don't know how. I mean, I guess that, I mean, that would be a cross-examination question to ask in a debate to see how he defends that. Because it's not the, the logical the logical conclusion would be that you lost the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Brett. No, I was just going to say... T- Hearing that, because I, I haven't listened to the Ali Stuckey, there, there's a point in time where I have to give myself a break. Yeah, um, sure. But but hearing that, you talk about a direct assault on God and his word. If, uh-huh. if you're saying that one who is regenerate can lose their salvation, that's... I don't even I don't even know where to go with that, and I and I what? don't know if Leighton would say that, but it's the logical conclusion to what he's saying. If if you can if you can libertarianly choose to move out of the spirit back into the flesh, we'll define what that means, right? Because ultimately, that would have to mean you've lost your salvation, uh, or you've yeah, lost and, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's the only thing it yeah, can and, mean. Yeah, and and uh, Eric Kemp say. They uh, differ in soteriology, too, because Eric Kemp would say that a person can lose their salvation, not not like a person loses their car keys, but, in, you know, in, right. in and of themselves, uh, libertarian freely right. just give back that salvation, right. that, that type of losing. And so, right. But he is consistent right. in his theology where Leighton is not, and especially right. if he's saying that if the Holy Spirit— leaves a person that person is a non-believer right yeah there's there's a major inconsistency there and i and i haven't heard his answer to that maybe it's in one of his writings or maybe it's something you know we could ask him do you have his new book the god's provision for all or whatever yes no i don't even have the potter's promise he he sent me a copy of his dissertation um, before it was published, back when we were interacting, that I've got somewhere, but I haven't bought either one of his books. Uh, I, I'm guilty of uh, of buying both of them, um, <laughs> and 
Because what I was hoping to do is give him a fair shake and and trying to understand what it is that he believes. So I uh-huh. figured, I figured it, you know, if someone's going to spend that much time, put that much effort into um, writing right. a book, right. then I can at least respect that. Sure. And and so that's the route I I went, and I must confess that I have not read either one of them all the way through. Um, mm. I tend to lose my patience and yeah. I, I probably need to do better <laughs> when it comes to that. <laughs> but um, sure. what do you, what do you, Paul, Paul, don't let me, don't let me hijack what you're saying. Cause I think you guys were having a good conversation there, but what do you do with the constant analogies? Cause you touched on that earlier. It's not as if he is exegeting the scripture. He, he's constantly going back to an analogy about, uh, undercover sting operation or right, watching right. his child try and take a cookie from the cookie jar and he could stop it right. if he wanted to, or he can allow it. Well, I think, I think that's an evading device where he knows that if he is to actually be honest with the text and to be cross-examined, those holes in his theology would come up. So it's like, okay, I need to jump out of that as fast as I can and get to an analogy. Um, and it's the same old analogies. And for example, the one I was kind of picking on in my podcast today was, you know, the alcoholic, the alcoholic admits that he's an alcoholic and he needs to just check himself into a rehab. And that's what we believe about about sin. And so just because you're an alcoholic doesn't mean you can't admit you're an alcoholic. Well, my point in that analogy is, OK, is merely admitting you're an alcoholic change your alcoholism? Right. Just, just, just checking yourself into a rehab actually constitutionally change something in you to make you not be an alcoholic anymore? Right. And so just merely admitting you're an alcoholic and checking yourself into rehab doesn't affect a change in you. And so if you're going to equate that to what it means to be converted, where all you do is admit that you're a sinner, well, then if you're just admitting you're a sinner and you need help, that doesn't mean any change is happening to you to go from being in the flesh and being into the spirit. And so a lot of his analogies just kind of break down. Yeah. And um, he uses the same ones, the sting operation, the cookie jar, the... Um, uh, the, the master chess player and yes, things yes. like that. So, yeah, and they're always and they're, and they're always human to human. It's always like a like a parent to a child or a cop. To, it's never it's never an omniscient, omnipotent God who knows and ordains all things um, outside of time, working His decree out in time. It's always you know on a human playing field about how humans interact with each other. And so you really can't you really can't bring God down to that level in your analogy. I agree, Paul. Were you going to say something? Yeah, well, and I think that uh, that mixed with some other stuff that Leighton does is is really dangerous because if you look at how he how he does the text, where you know if he if he starts off in Romans, yep, he'll pick a verse, but then he's going to go outside of Romans and he's going to he's going to build up the point mm-hmm. that he wants to make, and then he's going to import that port uh, exactly. back into Romans, and he does the same thing, you know, with his analogies. Of course, they're like you said, they're 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 man-made analogies, and it, it's just another way to where he can get uh, to to build people up what he's trying to say, and then he's going to import it into the text. Uh, it, you know, one of the things that I would like to talk about is his idea of the gospel. Because uh, I, mm-hmm. I was listening to the podcast that you done with uh, Tyler. Yeah, and Chris Date. Chris, Chris Date, yeah. And, and Chris Date brought up the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, let's see. I had it marked here. No, it, I'm sorry. It's First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, uh, four and five, and you know, Leighton says that, that that the gospel itself is enough right. to enable a response. Right. So, can you talk a little bit about how Leighton sees the gospel and then compare it to what it says? And if you hadn't got it there, I, I can read it in, in First First Thessalonians chapter one. Okay, let me let me pull it up here on my First Thessalonians one. Yeah, verses four and five. 
Okay. Well, um, sorry. Give me just one minute here. Yeah, you're fine. We've always talked about trying to get some music to play because <laughs> there's always a, a point in our podcast where we're looking something up. Sure. Like, like the Jeopardy theme. Or something. Yes. Yes. Something's like, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, and this is a bit, this is a big thing in, in Layton flowers. So, okay. So in reform, let, let's, let's put three, 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 three theologies side by side. Let's do reform theology. Let's do classical Arminianism and let's do traditional Southern Baptist. Okay. So in the reform tradition, we believe that humans are morally and spiritually incapable of coming to faith in Christ without a work of sovereign regeneration. Amen. Very basic statement. Okay. In Arminianism, they would say that humans are morally and spiritually unable to come to Christ, but yet God gives prevenient grace to all, which is an assisting grace that you can choose to accept that grace or resist that grace, but it's still an internal work of the Spirit deep within the heart of a person that has to help them along that path, I guess, to, to get to where they choose. Um, the traditional Southern Baptists will come along and say, okay, you're both wrong. Reformed people, you're wrong. Armenians, you're wrong. Humans are not born spiritually and morally incapable of coming to faith. That's not a condition from birth. That's something that happens over time when you grow judicially hardened or calloused. And so you have the ability, the libertarian free will, to accept the gospel. What you don't have, what the inability is, is that you just haven't heard the gospel yet. You don't know the gospel. Once the gospel is given to you, that is the grace. That is the prevenient grace itself. That's all that God has promised to give you is the gospel. And that's enough to enable a response. Once the gospel appeal is given, you have the ability to either accept it or reject it. Now, here's the question that I have. Okay, if the gospel itself is sufficient to enable a response, the word enable in and of itself means that you weren't able before, that something had to happen to enable you to do that. And their answer is, okay, the inability is not spiritual or moral from birth. The inability is just you haven't heard yet. Once you hear, now you can respond because you've heard the news. And so ultimately it's your libertarian free will that makes you able to respond to the gospel and why some people don't the problem's not in the gospel the gospel's sufficient the problem's in you you didn't use your libertarian free will to choose wisely mm. so that's that's in a kind of a nutshell what they believe about that so again you're having to eliminate john 3 romans 8 etc 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 to yeah i i've yeah, I've talked to I've talked to Leighton extensively, and basically what he's told me is that his goal is to dismantle total inability, because once he dismantles that, once he establishes that total inability or spiritual deadness or moral incapacity, once that's denounced, once that's denied, once that's proven not to exist, he can move forward from that to establish the rest of his theology. So that's why he works overtime to talk about this judicial hardening. That judicial yes. hardening is something that happens over time. That you, you know, you that you put yourself in that position by resisting over and over again. It's not something that, that that's an incapacity from birth. And so he's kind of used this judicial hardening theology, and he's imported that into every passage that teaches what we would seem to be inability. He said, oh, that's not, that's not moral and spiritual ability from birth. That's a judicially hardened Jew, or that's a person who's, who's, who's become callous over time. Yeah, uh, since, since you're on that subject, uh, one, one of the verses that, that he always goes to is uh, Jeremiah 13, verse 23, where the, the verse says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard right. change his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So he imports that well they've already uh, they've already hardened themselves against the truth of God. Right. You know they're they're spiritually right. hardened, but nowhere in the text does it say that. And he even goes as far to say that this verse doesn't teach that a person is uh, you know uh, born unable from birth to respond but the 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 verse in itself 
is talking about the Ethiopian skin, which he's born with. Right. The spots that the leopard's born with. But somehow when he gets to the last part of the verse, he says these people grew hardened. Yeah. Or he would say just because you're born that way doesn't mean you you don't have the ability to admit that you have that problem. Just because the Ethiopian was born with black skin doesn't mean that he can't, can't admit that he has black skin. Or just because the leopard was born with spots doesn't mean he can't admit that he has spots. Just because you're born a sinner doesn't mean you can't admit that you have sin in your life. And therefore, by admitting it, you're using your libertarian free will to admit it, and therefore that equals salvation. Can right, I, which none, none of that actually makes sense within the context of that verse. Let me give you a thought here, because this is one thing he'll bring up that may trip up us Calvinists. He'll go to Second Corinthians chapter 4 and say, okay, why does Satan have to blind the minds of unbelievers yes. from seeing the truth if we're already born in a condition of being blind um, um, on that? Because that's, that's a legitimate question that, that maybe we get asked. Sure. So, well, so tell me again, where are you, Second Corinthians? Second uh, Corinthians 4, like 6. 4, 6, okay. Uh, well, for Second Corinthians four, four through six. Okay, let's see. I'm, I'm just going to read this out loud here, so people who are listening know what we are talking about. So Second Corinthians four, and I'll start at verse four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the answer is, um, God has a sovereign decree. That's it. That he, that he established before the foundation of the world. Now, we don't know what that sovereign decree is, but we do know that God works it out in time and space. Yes. So just because we're born, quote-unquote, blind— doesn't mean, or we're born spiritually dead, doesn't mean that God uses the means of Satan as part of his decree to keep unbelievers in that state. Um, so, so the way I usually answer it is God's sovereign decree, everything that happens in time and space is a working out of God's sovereign decree. That's right. Just through means. That's now, right. look closely at that passage of Scripture, because this is where you can go back to Leighton and to answer the question that Paul had earlier about just the bare gospel. Okay, look at verse 5. Mm -hmm. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, so, okay, verse 4, non-believers are blinded. They can't see the light of the gospel. They can't see the glory of Christ. Okay, verse 5, we preach Jesus. We preach the bare gospel. And so if the bare gospel preaching Jesus was enough, if that was sufficient to overcome that blindness, if that's sufficient to enable a response, if that's all that's needed, then Paul would have just stopped right there and said, just preach the gospel to him. That's, right. that's enough. But look at verse 6. Okay. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there has to be an additional work of the Spirit deep within the heart to actually overcome that deadness. So it's... The word, yes, it's the gospel, yes, but that alone is not sufficient. There has to be the, the, the uh, contemporaneous work of the Spirit along with the word to do that internal work of overcoming that blindness. The heart of stone. So, yeah. yep. so, you see, so, so you see in verse 5, Paul could have just stopped there and said, all, you, all we need to do is just preach the bare gospel, and then that will enable a response. But he goes on and says, no, we, we preach the gospel, but God also has to reach down into the deep recesses of the heart to do that recreation like on the day of creation, that supernatural work. It's mm, a beautiful point. Beautiful point. And, uh, and I, this is one of the things that frustrates me with Dr. Flowers is so often he's been corrected on when he makes these little comments. Well, it was just predestined. It was just predestined. Why are you? Why are you speaking out against? I mean, why? Why are you have these reformed believers sitting outside planned abortion? I mean, Planned Parenthoods, talking to the ladies going in. If God has already predestined all that, then what are you doing? You're speaking against God, and then he'll go to Romans nine. Who are you? Yeah. 
but but I think that's one of the biggest issues that I have is that time and time again, and and we've heard James White say this, he flattens it out between God's decreed will and his prescribed will. Right, and and they won't. And one thing that traditional Southern Baptists they won't make that distinction. No, they flat out they flat out don't believe there's a, there's two types of will. They don't believe there's a secret sovereign will, and they don't believe that there's a revealed moral will. That that aren't in conflict, even though sometimes it appears to be, they they will deny that. Right. So they don't even they don't even they don't even buy the premise that we have as reformed people that there are two types of will in God. And if I'm not, was it Chris? Was the the, the conversation that Chris Date and Layton were having on? Um, oh, unbelievable! Justin unbelievable! Yeah, yes. Justin Bradley. Yeah. Yes, where yeah. Chris got Layton to admit by way of, of Joseph being thrown in the pit by his brothers, is that, yes, it has happened that way before, but just because it's happened that way before doesn't mean that's how it always comes to pass. Right. And, and what, he, what he would say is kind of his cop-out is just because God did it once in history that's, doesn't mean he always does it. That's it. That's just, it. And my, my point is if God did it once, can't that be enough to let us know that that's how he – normally i guess you'd say operates right um, and he would say yeah. just because just because the cross was predestined and god foreordained it yes. doesn't mean that god foreordained all the sins that jesus paid for on the cross right right it's uh at what so let me ask this and if you don't want to answer this question i i i get it i understand because the one thing again i do not want to do is anathematize anyone that's not i don't know the heart of man that that's god and god alone at what point do we say, Leighton, what you're teaching is heretical? Um, at this point, I don't know if I would label it heresy. Right. That's a that's a pretty strong that's a pretty it strong is, is. word. Um, because I think on the foundations of the faith, we would agree. Um, if he dabbles into sinless perfection, which I've heard some people say he's open to if dabbles into Pelagianism, denying, you know, inherited sin. If he, if he dabbles into open theism and, and he's consistently pursuing those things and, and espousing them and teaching them over an extended period of time, as opposed to saying, Hey, I'm open to it. There's a difference between saying, Hey, I'm open to it versus, okay, I've, this is my new conviction. And this is when I'm, you know, from this point forward, this is what I'm teaching. At that point, I think you could say, okay, yeah, he's moved into the heretical realm. I would say, I would say, what he's teaching is sub-Christian, sub-biblical, confusing, and divisive. Gotcha. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and I, and I'm not saying that. Please understand that I'm not saying that he is teaching heresy right now. Mm -hmm. I, right. I'm just. Where's that line? Where's that line? And I appreciate your answer. I, I truly do. I, again, because this is coming from low hanging fruit. So that's why we're bringing the doctor in to, to have this discussion with us. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, hopefully I've been helpful in, in answering some of these questions. So. Well, I, I think it's been fantastic. Paul, do you, do you have anything else, brother? No, uh, no, I, I think you answered uh, all my questions. I, I do appreciate uh, that, you know, you. when I reached out to you, you responded real quick. I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, coming on with us. And uh, hopefully maybe we could uh, get together in the future and, and maybe talk about some other things. Uh, but uh, I, I just really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you guys, and, and hopefully you'll get good feedback from from this podcast. In any way, I can I can help you guys. I know Paul, you've kind of asked me questions through um, text, and I've tried to answer them the best as I can because um, I know it is their, their theology is confusing and it's new, and um, there's not a lot of people out there that really fully understand what they what they believe. And so um, right. I, I think Leighton would attest that at least I'm one of the few guys out there that's taken the time to, to actually understand what he believes and faithfully represents their view. So, Well, Sean, I want to say thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with, with us guys here. Um, I, I do consider you 
uh, one of the leading scholars when it comes to understanding the, the traditionalist viewpoint. But I also consider you to be just a leading scholar. I, I thoroughly enjoy listening to uh, Understanding Christianity. Uh, it's right up there with James White for me. So, again, oh, thank, wow. you, thank you for all your hard work and everything that you have done. Um, I'll continue to pray for your ministry. And something else that I continue to pray for is hopefully you and, and Leighton having a formal debate. I would love to see that take place. So, Well, that could be arranged. And, and, and I really appreciate that comment about James White. That's a, that's a great compliment. He was actually my apologetics professor back when I was getting my MDiv. And so um, I've, I've been under his teaching uh, personally since around 2000. So um, that, that's a great compliment. And I really appreciate that. Well, it, it definitely, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. It definitely shows. And we're going to continue to pray for your ministry, brother. Again, thank you for your time. We greatly appreciate all the hard work that you've put in. Well, thank you. you. Guys have been so kind. You guys have been so encouraging, and and it's been edifying to be on this. And I really appreciate you guys listening. And um, you guys keep up the good work too. And and hopefully together we'll just keep seeking the face of the Lord and and doing what He's called us to do and be faithful. So thank you guys for your faithfulness. Amen, brother. Thank you. All Have right, a good Sean. night. All right. Thank All you guys. Right, bye bye. All right. Blessings. Bye. What do you think, man? How do you think that went? Think that went well? I'm still, I'm still recording, yeah, I, by the I, way. Yeah, I, I think it went. Uh, better than i thought really so <laughs> well uh guys thank you all so much for listening thank you again dr sean cole for all the work that you have done and in, in helping others understand what it is that the traditionalists believe let me say this again uh go to uh however it is you listen to your podcast but check out understanding christianity it's a it's a brilliant podcast sean just breaks there everything down just so eloquently, just like he did with us today. Let me do this one more time. Go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and check out Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel, and that's by Pastor Sean Cole. I think he said it dropped in April. So go go online or to your local bookstore, purchase this book, and uh, just support all the hard work that, that Sean is doing. So thank you, guys, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you.